Hey there, Carl here. Just a quick note before we begin that we had some snafus on my end recording this episode, and we've done the best we can to clean them up, but it's still not the smoothest recording, so sorry about that. And with that, on with the show. to Spiel. I'm Carl Wonders. And I'm Thad Haight. Today we will be kicking off the Roger Moore era of Bond by taking a look at 1973's Live and Let Die. Yeah. So I feel that we should mention this because, you know, we have no idea when someone might be listening to this. Uh, we are recording this in June of 2020. Um, when... There are some definite uh, problems, uh, racial <laughs> problems with this movie. And at, in uh, June of 2020, we are definitely seeing some major tensions in that area. So this was a bit a bit of a hard movie to get through. Yeah, I mean, I think two weeks ago, um, we've, we've been recording these typically on a Friday, and it was two days or so before that we were before we were supposed to record this that everything really started as far as all of the protests that have been in the news lately yeah. um and thad and i both agreed that it was just not the time to sit down and watch this movie um i hadn't seen it in a long time i remembered bits of it and i remembered how problematic i was going to find it and i just couldn't bring myself to watch it at the time and I, I think you agreed yeah um and so we're actually we took a hiatus for a week to and you know the fact that all of these protests are still in the news i think is really indicative of of what's going on in the country mm-hmm. um that said we we you know america I, is I don't still racist it, 40 years I, later correct um and you know i i know you've just recently read the book which oh, boy, is, is also racist it is and it's it's differently racist if there's such a thing oh yeah no it's absolutely the like imperialist british racism uh like you know the white british man is is superior to the to the black man sort of thing whereas in this one it's much more stereotyped. I mean, neither one is good. <laughs> no, no, neither one is good. Um, so I, I, I'm going to offer this disclaimer. Um, that and I are both white men. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there comes with any kind of discussion in, in this area that I think that that context is important. I'm not claiming to be an expert in racial issues. Um, I'm continually finding that I need to learn more about them and need to educate myself better to better speak to these things. Um, And I I wanted to preface that by saying that I find the racism in this film different, as you were saying, than the book in a lot of ways in that I don't feel that the, 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 
the black characters in this film are treated by the other characters, the non-black characters, in a racist way in a lot of time. There are some times where it's done that way. I, I feel that this is just a case of a white guy writing what he thinks is how black people would act and speak and yes. just gets it completely wrong. Um, yeah, it's so, not the overt racism of Ian Fleming's novel. No, in it, in it, in it, I mean, so Tom Mankiewicz is the only credited screenwriter on this film. He co-wrote Diamonds Are Forever. He'll also co-write uh, The Man with the Golden Gun next week. And I feel that the racism in this... Did he also write good movies? So I'm going to get to one, actually. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so, but I feel that his, his, his racism... And I'm, I'm, I realize I'm going to dump all of this on Tom Mankiewicz, and, and even though uh, Richard Maybaum shares a credit with him, both in the preceding and the succeeding film... Um, I feel that the racism in this film feels to me a lot like the sexism in Diamonds Are Forever, where it's not the character of Bond, let's say, being sexist or racist towards somebody. It's just that the characters are written so poorly that they come off as sexist or racist. Like, the women are written badly. Oh, I would say the character of Bond is extremely sexist in this movie, but... Oh, no, he is. I'm t but we, we we were talking about 60s and 70s sexism last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, and we definitely have more of that gross female females are idiots sexism in this movie. Yes. Um, so you asked me about good films. Um, so he's not credited as the screenwriter, and it was actually a big thing. Tom Mankiewicz, to my understanding, is almost entirely responsible for the original shooting scripts of Superman 1 and 2. Okay. He, so he he he's credited as the creative consultant, which is a kind of a weird attribution that they throw at people when, for whatever reason, the, the Writers Guild won't let them get screenwriting credit. So, like, the Donner cut was probably Mankiewicz, whereas... Right, so D Donner, Donner and uh, Mankiewicz are good friends. Okay. And Donner hired Mankiewicz to rewrite Superman 1 and 2. Um, and... The reason I bring this up is, well, one, you asked me about good films, and I actually really like Superman 1 and the Donner cut of Superman 2 in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I like, I really like Superman. I think it's a great script. I think it's a great story. It's a great take on the character. There's a scene when Superman first becomes Superman. We first have him unveiled in Metropolis when Lois Lane is hanging out of a helicopter window on the roof. He runs through a revolving door and comes out as Superman, and there's a black man in the street. And he goes, Hey, Jim! Whoa! Excuse me. That's a bad outfit! <laughs> okay, That's the Tom Mankiewicz that wrote this movie. Right. That wrote Live and Let Die. Like, that is exactly that. The, the, the hey baby and the all that crap that gets thrown yeah. out in this movie. Like, just Mankiewicz should just never have written black characters as far as I'm concerned. Or he should have educated himself better before writing black characters. Um... I would say he should go and educate himself, but he is no longer with us, so that's beside the point. Uh, but yeah, so that that's my that's my thing about this. Like Mankiewicz is just somebody who didn't do his research and was probably going off of what he saw in black exploitation films and other sorts of things and said, "Hey, I can do that too." That makes sense, since I would I would consider this movie in and of itself to be a black exploitation film. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely the. 
Um, you know, later on we get when in the Craig era we get you know Quantum of Solace, which is absolutely in my mind a a reaction to the Bourne films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas here, you know, they're clearly saying, "Hey, that's the style that's popular now. Let's do that." I'm not. I am not the biggest expert. I, I haven't seen that many black exploitation films, to be honest. I've seen Shaft. Uh, you know, I've seen parts of them. I know of them, but I don't think I've actually seen any other than this one. I've seen Black Dynamite, which is a spoof on them. Right. <laughs> and I mean, just to say that I don't know if this is comparable or if this is a bad pay on to exploitation films are they always this style you know dialogue wise and everything i don't know i can't speak to that unfortunately no i am i i wouldn't say but i've from people who know such things have at least claim to know such things have has to considered this a black exploitation movie so i have no reason to disagree with that but yeah you're right i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to make any an educated that educated determination on my own because I am not familiar with the genre. Yeah. Like I don't know if I sat down and watched, you know, uh, I, I'm struggling to come up with a title off the top of my head. Um, you know, if I sat down to watch Coffee or one of the, or uh, again, if I went to watch Shaft again, I think I've seen it once. It's been a long time. Would I be as uncomfortable watching it now as I was watching this film? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Shaft, probably not, just because, I mean, in this case, you've got the white guy fighting the black villains, whereas you don't get that with Shaft. That that is true. That's an added uh, bit of uncomfortableness to the story. Uh, And it's funny because in an interview they did with Mankiewicz, he, you know, he did Diamonds Are Forever, and, and the producers came to him and said, yeah, we really liked what you did. Which book would you like to do? They basically let him pick, and he said, I want to do Live and Let Die because he liked the challenge that was associated with writing a film where the villains were all black in an era when you had Black Panthers and that sort of thing going on. So he knew that he had it. He, In his mind, he had to handle it in a certain way and not be overtly racist. And I don't know if, you know, just the, the fact of the times that we live in versus... 1973 if that makes such a huge difference or not um if if when this film came out if everyone called it racist and terrible or if that's just something that has come along i mean i would imagine if you talk to i don't don't think people did when it came out no but then you know Uh, i don't know if they talked to black people about this film i know yafet koto was not thrilled with it uh he's given some interviews where he's not minced words about what he thought of this film yeah no but i i think in general i think the film did well didn't it i mean i think it did um i i don't have the Got box a gross I, of 161.8 million out of a budget of seven yeah so, so i'd call that well. yeah that that's doing pretty well yeah um i feel like at this point you know bond was pretty well baked into the public consciousness here um, they, they had just come off of Diamonds Are Forever, which, again, is not a great movie, but it had Sean Connery, and I'm sure that helped boost sales for tickets. Right. I don't... But I think I, I think the fact that Sean Connery isn't in this movie, and it still did well. Yeah. And I don't know how well Ro- uh, Roger Moore was known, especially in the United States. I don't know if The Saint was a popular show over here. Uh, 
because I, you know, that was mostly what he was known for at the time. I imagine Sean Connery wasn't well known in the United States yet either, though. He had been in things, but he wasn't he wasn't a household name before James Bond. Well, he hadn't really acted much before. Uh, but I mean, when you're kicking off a franchise, it's a little bit different than. He was in a Disney movie. Darby O'Gill and the Little People. I have not seen that one. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't either. I just know he was in it. (laughs) I was going to be really surprised if you had seen that movie, actually. (laughs) I mean, I could. I have an empty plus. I could watch it right now. Uh, (laughs) But no, I have not seen it. (laughs) So shall we uh, try to tackle this film here? Uh, Might as well. All right. So... We get the traditional uh, James Bond pre-credit sequence that, trivia for people out there, this is one of three films, Bond films, that doesn't have Bond in the opening of the film, and it's the only one that doesn't have the actor who plays Bond in the opening. Right, because technically he's not in From Russia With Love. Right. But Sean Connery obviously is. And he's also technically not in The Man With The Golden Gun either. Oh, yeah, you're right. But Roger Moore is, but as, yes. a, as a dummy. But he's but Bond does not actually appear there. So. so, yeah. So we get the United Nations. And fun fact, you can actually see uh, the World Trade Center under construction in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I think this scene is cool, I question the actual feasibility of shot of killing someone via headphone wire. Yeah. Because I don't know, in the seventies was headphone wire like twelve gauge or something? <laughs> I, I mean Yeah. <laughs> now I was I've always and I, I mean maybe I'm wrong. I, I've always seen that as some kind of a sonic weapon. Because you get that weird sound okay, effect that goes possible. into his head. All right, that might that makes more sense. I I was I assumed it was an electric shock, but yes, a, a sound, some sort of s- sound that kills him seems more likely. Although the idea of a sound that would be so strong that it would kill him that wouldn't also blow out the headphones yeah. seems unlikely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm sure there are, but I can definitely say for electric shock, a typical headphone wire would melt through <laughs> rather than yeah. deliver yes. enough power Absolutely. to actually kill someone. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I love the fact that the two guys on either side of him just don't care. <laughs> like, he stands yeah, up and falls over and they just look at him and keep doing their thing. It's the people on the other side of the room that actually yeah. care, yeah. yeah. And then they move on to New Orleans and they show this jazz funeral, which is another thing that I don't quite understand the specifics of, but I think it's clever. Okay, so there are funeral funeral processions like this mm-hmm. in New Orleans do actually happen. It's called a second line. It's part of the culture of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's clever. It seems unlikely to get all of these people together <laughs> just to kill this one guy. Yeah. <laughs> It's another inefficient killing method, I would 
<laughs> and I really, really want to know how the coffin works because they like set it down on top of him for a second and then pick it up and he's in it. Yeah, and but it's a practical thing. I don't know how they did it for real. Like, to... there's that too. I mean, <laughs> I want to know both how they filmed it and secondly how they presume it actually worked in real life. Because I went back and watched it like two or three times to see if there was you know anybody in the background that jittered or something like they cut the camera and then they refilmed you know and they took the guy out mm -hmm. and then they re-rolled the camera but nothing like that happened so it was a continuous shot yeah and there wasn't time for him to like crawl out the back no. or anything no okay so okay in real life it, with how they actually filmed it my guess is the act there's there's handholds inside the coffin for the actor uh, to grab on yeah that makes sense but <laughs> doesn't tell us how in in the in the universe of the movie, how was this supposed to work? No. <laughs> but anyway, it's a cool scene. It's a cool scene. We get two, I think, clever bits, and then we get one terrible one. Um, that snake never touches the guy's face. Yeah. So <laughs> I've again in my head canon, he doesn't get bit. He like has a heart attack or something because he clearly does not get touched by the rubber snake no he doesn't but he does have what might possibly be blood on his face now that's um they they splash him with wine or something the the women that come up to him oh that's up. right yeah okay all right so yeah if uh, yeah you're you're being far more forgiving than i am but I'll, okay <laughs> oh don't worry we have a lot of movie to go okay so then we get the theme, mm -hmm. which I would say, ordinarily, this is great. Yep. Who doesn't like Paul McCartney, except possibly James Bond? <laughs> uh, I do wonder if he listened to this theme with earmuffs. Um, but the very first visual image is a woman, a naked woman dressed up as in, like, African tribal imagery. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, uh... Come on, Morris. You get, and then you get the woman with all the tribal tattoos and yep, flaming voodoo skulls and all that stuff. The theme, the music is good the, though. The theme, uh, it's probably the best part of the movie. Yeah. But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give it. I would say that 
it's definitely the best part of the movie. It's it's probably a top five theme for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't sat down and ranked all of them, but off the top of my head, I would say this is in the top five. It's, oh, I mean, yeah, it's really good. I mean, Guns N' Roses did a cover of this song, so... They did. It's really good. It is good, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the yeah. Guns N' Roses cover. Yeah. But, and, and it's one of those, it's one of the ones that, if you've never seen Bond before, you've probably heard this song. Yes. I'm... Um... And I'm not sure if any of the other Bond films that would apply to. The only one I can think of is probably The Spy Who Loved Me. Because I remember when I saw that for the first time after a long time, like, you know, when I was a kid, they would do the TBS marathons. And I, and, but then I hadn't seen it in years and years and years. And I put it on. I'm like, oh, I know this song. So that might be the only other one I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, the other ones, like, there are, you know, they have mainstream bands performing the others, but the particular song never really became mainstream. Like, everybody knows Duran Duran, but not A View to a Kill. Right. Yeah, and, I mean, AHA is famous, but not for the Living Daylights. Uh, yeah, Madonna for Die Another Day? No. Oh, no. And this is really the first... Uh, and rightly so. If that was Madonna's best work, then she didn't deserve to be famous at all. No, no, not at all. Uh... This might this is this is really the first real pop song that we get to. Uh you yeah. know, everything else has always been solo uh singers and and written by the composer of of the film. Um this is the first time we've had a completely outside entity write a song. Um Well, they are trying to separate this from the other Bond films because they don't want to they don't want to quote make the same mistake they did with Lazenby, right? Uh, and they they want to sh- emphasize that Roger Moore is a different Bond and it's a different movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, with touches like this where they're doing music in a different way, that's and then the next scene right here after the credits is also uh, where we get Bond getting his briefing from M mm-hmm. in his flat, right? Which we've never had before. I mean, we've only seen his flat briefly in Doctor No. I think we haven't. He's never gone back home again since then. Yeah, and I'm a little confused on this one here. So obviously Bond wants to keep M out of the bedroom so he doesn't see the Italian agent he's sleeping with. Right. But why is M heading to the bedroom in the first place? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, wouldn't it have made more sense for M to sit down in sit the living down in the room? living room or heck, yeah, not wandering i mean i wouldn't wander into someone's bedroom even if i know them you know <laughs> that's yeah not... and i certainly like as soon as i'm like let in through the door just start walking to their bedroom yeah. <laughs> i mean i do yeah. find the architecture of bond's flat or house very interesting where he has that like raised platform to go up to his bedroom that's like three steps and then it's just like that giant door to the bed uh but yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, also, there's he had, and I guess this is a there's like a window with blinds in it yeah. between his living room yeah. and the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> like so you sometimes see that for like see the space there for s- serving food or whatever, but I've never seen an actual glass window with blinds no. separating no. a kitchen from another room before. Right. <laughs> 
Um, I I really enjoyed this scene mostly for the coffee. Uh, <laughs> the, the coffee's good. I like how Bond makes an offhand comment about how he and one of the agents who died shared the same bootlegger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because they're 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 still setting Bond up as this you know ridiculous British snob, mm-hmm. which I think Roger Moore plays the British snob so much better than Sean Connery oh, he, ever did. He really does. I mean, that's that definitely is is where where he he sh- he nails a lot of this early on. I think. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I this is why Moore is my favorite Bond. Okay, and. I'm going to backtrack a little bit and actually give Tom Mankiewicz a little bit of credit here. I, I give him a lot of okay. crap for the way he writes characters who are not white men, typically. I like his one-liners a lot. Um, I think they're clever. I think they, they're they not obvious ones often. Like, you know, I would never have thought to say that the guy shares his bootmaker. Or, you know, you get the great scene where he has this coffee grinder he's basic he's making espresso or something is a you know he has to make a little pellet of coffee and it is a, a complicated process to make m his cup of coffee and he hands it to him and m just looks up and says is that all it does like, pointing at the coffee thing yeah, that and, was you good. Know, like little little touches like that 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 i appreciate a and lot. honestly i do wonder how many people in 1973 had an espresso oh, maker in their house just probably one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, exactly. And to watch the process, it does seem like a very ridiculous thing to have to make a cup of coffee. It does, um, and I'm sure it definitely looked insane to the people, it, the audiences in the '70s. Yes. With my 21st century sensibilities, I don't personally have an espresso maker, but I know plenty of people who do. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't seem that odd to me. No, I agree. But I recognize that at the time, I'm sure it looked really weird. Yeah. I also, I, I wrote this down and I failed to mention it. We, when we first see Bond in bed with the Italian agent, um, I have to point out that at this point, Bond has moved on to shaving his chest hair. Um, oh, he definitely has. <laughs> and he will, I think he continues to throughout the entire Moore era. Oh, he does. But since since we've been so obsessed with Sean Connery's back hair, yeah. I felt the need to point out that he is now Yeah, no, he's shaven. definitely got a Shatnerian chest going on. <laughs> Yes. But yes, uh definitely uh Roger Moore shaves his chest for these movies yep. here and Timothy Dalton doesn't. No. And I know Brosnan doesn't. No, he does not. And but chest that's cuz chest hair had come back into vogue. It had... But you'd think like the 70s, like you think of the 70s and you think people in disco shirts with their chest hair popping up out of it. I mean, <laughs> It seems like it. It feels odd that Bond, as the symbol of macho seventies, would have wouldn't have chest hair. But I guess that's like to make him look more sophisticated. Maybe. And again, I'm not a chest hair expert. I <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what something more did for some some other thing, and then he's just like, well, now I got to keep doing it because you know, who knows. It's like that Seinfeld episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. I can't oh. stop. <laughs> Alex thinks I'm naturally hairless. What? You can't keep this up. 
Don't you know what's gonna happen? Every time you shave it, it's gonna come in thicker and fuller and darker. <laughs> oh, that's an old wives' tale. Is it? Look at this. So, the real question is: Do you think Moore had to shave his back, or was he? I, I I'm assuming he's just less hairy than. Conrad. No, I think he's just less hairy. But I will say. Maybe it's partially because of the shaved chest, but I think it's mostly just because of his face. But Moore looks at least ten years younger oh, than I know. in this movie. I, I'm caught off guard. Like I, Again, I hadn't seen this movie in a while. That first shot of him, I'm like, holy crap. Because like, yeah. I'm, I'm in my head, I'm thinking of like old Roger Moore when he should have stopped <laughs> being Bond. And, yeah. and, and now I'm like, wow, he... Now I see why they hired him. I mean, he, oh yeah, he, he absolutely and looks the so part. What's so amusing about this is that he, the actor himself, was actually a few years older than Connery. Well, again, wasn't Connery like thirty-seven or something? In the, in... <laughs> right, <laughs> looked like fifty. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah, and you can definitely see with more over the course of the movies because he definitely ages quite a bit over the next mm-hmm. ten years. Uh, but. In this movie, he looks very young. Yeah. Uh, when we go from Connery in Diamonds Are Forever, he just, yeah. Yeah. Roger Moore does not look like Richard Nixon. No, not yet, anyway. I don't think he ever will. No, no, not quite. <laughs> uh, so we get... No, if I were comparing Moore to a president, it would be JFK. At this age, yeah... How he looks in this film. I mean, obviously, yeah. well, I mean, we would never know what JFK would have looked like when he was older. No. But, you know, at this age, mm-hmm. yes. Now I'm wondering what president all the bond, all the Bonds look like. Oh, dear. <laughs> We're just avoiding talking about this movie. I like the watch thing, because... Uh, so, I like the watch thing. I like M uh, ribbing Bond about having Q fix his watch. Yeah. I like Bond showing him how the magnet works. I don't understand why M wants this spoon back. <laughs> yeah. He already stirred the coffee and is drinking it now. He doesn't need that spoon back. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I I really do like the line before that when... Because he's talking about the watch. Bond's talking about the watch and he says it's magnetic field powerful enough to deflect the path of a bullet. And M says, I'm very tempted to test that theory right now. That was good, yes. <laughs> Uh, and of course, later when he has the, uh, when uh, when he uses it to unzip the dress, yes, that's pretty good. That's good. Sheer magnetism, he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we also see I probably this was really modern for the time. I think that digital watch that he has in bed. I imagine that was mm-hmm. one of the first times, and a lot of people would have seen something like that too. Yes. We should also mention the initials on his bathrobe. Yes, monogrammed bathrobes, JB. I'm surprised it's not, like, his full, his <laughs> mid- middle name as well, you know? And 007 underneath, because he's <laughs> so bad at being secret. <laughs> he's the least secret agent ever. Also, who do you think is above his fireplace on that painting? Ooh, I don't know. Duke of Wellington? I don't know. The rescue that painting. He rescued the painting from Doctor No. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amusing. Yes. But I guess we find out at this point that 
you know, M's there because of the agents that died and they want Bond to go go to New York to you know, follow up with the guy who died at the UN and I mean it, it the other thing and, and this is an overarching issue I have with this movie is the the plot is just not anything that exciting to me. No. No, I mean there's no evil plan. There's there's no evil plan for world domination. There's just some guy making heroin. I mean, I do think it's clever and we'll get to it when we get to the scene later, but I think it's a clever idea to say I'm just going to saturate the market and drive all of the other drug dealers out of business. Like and maybe that's it's clever, maybe it's sure, a good but... plot for another, you know, 1973-74 like a French Connection style film. Not a Bond movie. Yeah. Like gr- uh, I I do think cuz I have read this book. Mm-hmm. Uh and I do think it works better in the book. Mm-hmm. What they do in the book is that they had found the they had found gold from I think it was Henry Avery, yeah. a pirate in the Caribbean, uh, and were selling it and financing the Soviet the Soviets with it. Right. So obviously, it being the Cold War, they had to stop that. Yeah, this is another Smirsh tie-in that gets a casual mention in From Russia with Love, and that's about it. But for a lot of the early books, yeah. uh, I mean, like, everybody is connected to Smirsh early on. Um, I think Goldfinger mm-hmm. actually is the treasurer of Smirsh at one point, or is mentioned as, of course as is. working for them, too. So, um, but yeah, we've, you know, they, Smirsh was out, Spectre was in early, like, from the beginning in the, in the films, and uh, but none of that is in here. This is probably during the McClory Lawsuits yeah, I don't think they stuff. can mention no. Spectre at this point. No, I don't think they can. Yeah, we won't hear Spectre mentioned again until the Craig era. Right. Not directly. Uh, well, well, not directly. Count Never Say Never Again. True, but that's <laughs> that was Kevin McClory's movie. So, so Bond goes to New York, and we get uh, that this vo- voiceover shot of the plane, and then this woman who we don't know yet turning over. Uh, fortune cards and describing well, it's stuff. not jane seymour it, it's not jane seymour's voice it's nikki vanderzil again again we've talked about this before for some reason they dubbed jane seymour and i don't i don't know why uh yeah. jane seymour has a perfectly fine she does american maybe because she doesn't have an american voice and they don't maybe yeah they wanted to do some sort of accent and maybe jane seymour couldn't do anything but american i don't know i, I don't know yeah because yeah i mean i Jane Seymour is an actress, has been in many things, and definitely, it's not, we're not looking at a issue like in Goldfinger, where it would be an incomprehensible German accent. Right, yeah, yeah. It's just an odd decision. I mean, Nikki Vanderzel made a career out of randomly dubbing women in Bond films, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a cool thing here where um, Bond's luggage tag. Uh-huh. Matches up with the license plate of the cab to pick him up. Yeah. Because that's how he knows that it's the the one waiting for him. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's a neat little spy thing. Yeah, I, I, yeah that, I, think, I think that's clever. So we get yet another Felix Leiter. We get another Felix Leiter. Who will return. Who, yes, he does return. Um, I, th- I think he's a perfectly adequate Felix Leiter. I think he does a better time. Yeah. He has a, I think he's better in the next film that he's in, mostly because the film is better. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, also, you know, we talk about Roger Moore being too old to play Bond. I think David Hedison looks fantastic in License to Kill, considering he looks fairly middle-aged in this movie, and this is 1973, and it's... 16 years later that he just shows up again. Yeah, he looks pretty darn good. Yeah, and funnily enough, comparing the books to the movies, David Hedison is Felix Leiter in this movie, and the book is the one where Felix Leiter gets fed to the shark and gets the, the note that says he disagreed mm-hmm. with something that ate him. So he gets to do that, even though it's the other film he's in. But I just think that's interesting. Yes. <laughs> that is a nice little... Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is a... So, other than the racism, sexism, and ageism that is prevalent throughout the entire book, it's a good book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels really weird to say that. Um, I will say when I listened, when I was reading this one, I was going back and forth between the ebook and the audiobook, uh-huh. and I had to have headphones in when I was listening to that <laughs> yeah. book because it, this was spring. I had my windows open, and I honestly was worried one of my neighbors would hear something. Oh dear! Yeah, and. <laughs> There's some really racist stuff in that book. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> so, so we now have the rearview mirror assassin gun, well, or side, side mirror, side, side mirror assassin, assassin gun. Um, the one thing that I really noticed here was, you know, I lived in New York for a few years. I've never seen the FDR that empty. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, I've never lived there, but yeah. I've seen traffic in New York. Yeah. And it, um yeah the the rear the side mirror dark gun thing that takes out poor charlie the driver um also like there are taxi cabs but there aren't nearly enough taxi cabs right well we have ta- we, like, we have issues two-thirds with... of the cars on the street aren't taxi cabs it's not new York. correct although they clearly did film it in new york but uh, <laughs> yes but it was on a closed set and we have other issues with cabs later uh <laughs> yes so what i want to know here well again i guess i i don't know again we have the cia doing stuff in the country which i don't know do we know why they're paying well, it's so because much because they're it's because it's the what's well, san monique um, it's it, he's yeah yeah it is an international thing right do we know why they care so much about kananga no <laughs> Well, at this point, he killed a bunch of British operatives. But they don't know that. Well, they suspect it, because their, their person in San Monique was killed. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, again, we have people who are really bad at keeping secrets, because he's going to kill an agent on his own island. Yeah. That we see later is about ten miles across or something. Cause it's... Yeah, he kills the people in the places that now Bond knows exactly where to go to. Very convenient. we later get, he's saying, well, we need to go to New Orleans because that's where our agent was killed. Yeah. Right across the street from his restaurant. Or club or whatever <laughs> it was. I do like the name of the restaurant. Yeah. I like Filet of Soul. Filet of Soul. Nice yeah, that's good. That is good. I should mention that and I mentioned that he didn't like the movie, and I think he's right to be annoyed. I think Yafet Koto does a good job with the crap that he's given here. As yes, I would I will say that. I mean, his his character is not good, no. but yes, I think he's it's not in any way a fault in his acting. And he does ha- he does do the same thing in Aliens later when 
he has this way of being very quiet and intense and then just kind of erupting out of nowhere at times and he can be fairly intimidating for not a large guy uh, mm-hmm. I, I you know it's it's a weird thing where it's like I like the performance even though I don't like what he's performing <laughs> a lot of the time yeah and they don't at any point explain why he puts on gray face to be Mr. Big. That is the, the worst get up ever. <laughs> How does that fool yeah. anybody? Yeah. And he, even Bond seems like he's surprised by this. So, again, I'm having to draw back to the book because I just read it. Okay. Um, In the book, well, the character of Kananga doesn't exist. No. And Mr. Big does have a dual identity, but the other identity is Parinsomity. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so that actually was confusing me while watching this, because I was waiting for Mr. Big to show up as Baron, for Yafakoto to show up as Parinsomity too, because <laughs> I had forgotten, yeah. and I had just read the book, and I thought he was like being all three characters. I also like that in the book, and you can remind me what it is, because I don't remember exactly, but how... He got the name Mr. Big because it's his initials? I think so, yes. I don't remember what they Because he has, like, a French... Because but... he's Haitian, I think. Or... Yeah. he And he has... And he's only partially of African-American ancestry. Because Ian Fleming made great points to point out that that is the only way he could possibly lead a criminal enterprise. Because yeah, he's not fully African-American or... Of African ancestry. Yeah, which we, we did mention just, that it's wow. racist, the book. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they explain the gray, the, the gray um, skin tone in the book. Okay. It's because he has a heart condition. Mm, okay. But then we have this in the movie where Mr. Big is not the actual character. Mr. Big is the affected persona. And... He puts on gray makeup for some reason, which clearly they got the idea because Mr. Big yes. in the in the book is gray. But it doesn't work when it's not Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that Dr. Kananga is not a known entity by any of these people. Uh, the problem is that we the audience know Dr. Kananga because we've been following him around and then I, I I can't imagine anyone in the audience when Mr. Big shows up said anything but hey that's Yafet Kodo in Grayface latex like <laughs> and then immediately yeah, making exactly. Bond seem like an idiot. It would have been so much better if we just like saw him like with yeah. a hidden face, a la Blofeld. Oh, I forgot to mention he also has an Afro wig, so that's very yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, obviously that changes uh, everything. But, I mean, Tom Mankiewicz also want, expects us to believe that Christopher Reeve with his with glasses on looks completely different than Christopher well, Reeve with glasses on. That's so it a makes Superman sense. trope anyway. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, Kananga knows that he's being listened to by the CIA because he plays his... He plays a tape yeah. to make it sound like he's in the room talking when yeah, he's not which again i think is somewhat clever yeah so bond follows the car that killed his driver or to of another pun yes oh called <laughs> voodoo i 
And I do like how he asked to have the snake gift wrap. Gift wrap lengthwise. I'm really wondering what the difference is between lengthwise and... <laughs> no, but it makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, it does, but what does it even mean? I think the point is it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, so he can get rid of the, the store clerk so he can follow whisper i don't know if you recognized him from the car which i should point out they refer to as a pimp mobile at one point <laughs> yes they do uh, <laughs> whisper is also in the book yes he is he's and they explained that he had had a had a respiratory disease as a child so yeah he follows whisper whisper and then they drive away in an elevator which <laughs> Either this elevator was designed to hold this car, mm -hmm. or this car was designed to fit in this elevator. Because <laughs> there's like an inch of leeway in the front and the back when that car goes up that elevator. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cars were big in the 70s. But not, not popular, they were just large. But still. Yeah, it's... It's impressive driving that nothing got scratched. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so... So Bond gets in a taxi and asks him to follow it. And at this point, we don't yet know the driver, along with everyone else in Harlem, apparently, works for Mr. Bay. Right. And again, they do a variation of the Felix Leiter's being a dick move here, where they show this other guy in a car following them, and they just keep cutting between all these people who are radioing in saying, oh, he's... You know, he's turning left here, or he's going over here, and then this other guy, who we find out eventually works for the CIA, but they're trying to trick us into thinking he's just another, you know, lackey so, for Mr. Big, I guess. Is there, like, somebody just manning the Mr. Big switchboard at all times? I mean, <laughs> how does this work? I don't know. <laughs> how do these people, like the shoeshine guy, how did he know who to tell that he needed to report that this taxi cab was going past him. Well, and do they even know who Bond is? No. So why do they care? <laughs> well, maybe they do know. No, they must know who Bond is. Well, Mr. Big pretends he doesn't. Yeah. But he must know. Because they tried to have him killed on the way in. True. Yeah, and I guess that at this point, you know, Solitaire the, has been, you know, basically telling them where, right. where what's going on and where he is and what is... And they don't know who he is per se, they just know that somebody's coming with intentions that are not good for them, I guess. Right. But I do enjoy this cab driver. Uh, he Again, we have someone who is very obviously what a white person thinks a black person is. Yeah. Um, yeah. For 20 bucks, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan picnic. Hey, man. For 20 bucks, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan cookout. Ku Klux Klan cookout. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Easy likes alliteration. I don't know. <laughs> well, cookout makes more sense. I can't, yeah. can't picture them, like, you know, laying out the the blankets and doing a picnic. Uh, on the other hand, they like sh they do like their sheets. So yeah. maybe. <laughs> and I like how he looks back at Bond expecting Bond to laugh, and Bond's just sort of like, what? <laughs> yeah. We, we, we see a CIA guy at one point say, You can't miss it. It's like following a cue ball. Yes. 
Um, I do like the last line that the cab driver gets here after he drops Bond off in Harlem and he's about to go into the filet of soul and he just says, Sure hope you make friends easy. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So then we have the scene where Bond comes in and everyone stares at him. He, because again, as you pointed out earlier, they're trying to differentiate Bond here. He orders a bourbon with water. Neat. Um, How does that work? Well, I mean, unless you're getting like a Booker's or something that's really high octane bourbon, I don't know why you would put water technically in it. every bourbon is with water uh yeah if you want to be technical fine about it. but <laughs> but yeah no how can you it both be with water and neat well because then he clarifies he's like that means he said no ice and i like when the guy's like that'll yeah. be extra <laughs> yeah i want some 35 cent french fried potatoes though because he's sitting in front of a giant menu on the wall yes cheeseburger is 70 cents mm-hmm. I, and i i do i do enjoy the the waiter has time to snag the money that Bond yes. is paying for information right before he's turned around. He's, he's turned around. Yeah, his the booth, the entire booth, like revolves 180 degrees. He takes the money from the guy, and then Bond turns around and, and he drinks his drink. drink. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah, and then he he ends up in the in the room where some goons, I guess, and and solitaire now. I think this is a bad line that there there are many bad lines, um, but this is just poor juxtaposition I think for me because the first time I saw this movie, I didn't realize that Solitaire's name was Solitaire because she's doing the tarot cards and Bond comes in and says something like "Put the Black Queen on the Red King," and her re- yes. her response is like, and then he says, "Yeah, put put the black put the Black Queen on the Red King, Miss." And then she looks up and says, solitaire. She could just be talking about the game, yeah. I'd also like to point out that her eye makeup is interesting. It is. Her, her everything, but yeah, her costuming is interesting. Uh, that weird, like, later on she has that weird headdress, like, vice thing that she's in that, like, holds her in place. And so it's odd. Yeah, and I also should point out, Bond is wearing a double-breasted suit jacket. Which mm-hmm. I find interesting, because in the novel, they make okay. specific mention about how Bond has to make concessions to American style when he's here, when he's in the U.S., and has to exchange his double-breasted suit jacket for a single-breasted. And yet, uh, clearly, he doesn't do that in the movie. <laughs> well, I would... I mean, the book was written in the 50s. <laughs> I don't think double-breasted jackets in, in became more popular between the 50s and the 70s. <laughs> I don't know. That's true, because Teehee is also wearing one now that I see this. Teehee's wearing one. Yeah, Teehee is pretty cool. Teehee's like the one character I really like in this movie. I have trouble with the physics of him bending Bond's gun. Yeah, so that that happens a lot, I think. Like, I know in Robocop when he comes in and there's the guy with the machine gun and he just reaches over and bends it, and everyone always forgets that you have to have the strength in the other hand. Yeah, because so like if his vice grip <laughs> is so strong, sure, but it would have ripped the handle of the gun out of his other hand when he tried to bend it like that. Yeah, right. But anyway, it's it's you know there to demonstrate the strength, and he's he's a cool villain. Yeah, he is. Uh, I like. I just. I, I mean, I like how he just reaches in, takes the gun out, bends it, and then hands it back to him and smiles at him. And... So yeah, then we get the. Oh, so cleverly 
disguised Yafit Koto as Mr. Big. He gives the order to waste him, and he's like, waste him? That good? Names is for tombstones, baby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. I, I like I like when they're leading him away and he just keeps looking back at Solitaire and saying, like, stay right there. I won't be long. Again, I think Roger Moore's already on his game with, with these quips. Oh, yeah. uh, so then they take him out into the alley, which is apparently the only scene that they actually shot in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Harlem was the most dangerous part of New York to be in in the early 70s. And I re- I didn't realize this was actually shot in Harlem when I watched this, and I remember thinking, well, they really went overboard with making it look like Harlem. But apparently not. Uh, but they did do some things, because apparently when Bond walks past those dangling wires, apparently they had, ri- they had pulled those wires off the building t- for atmosphere, and disconnected the phone service for everybody in the building oh, no. when they did that. <laughs> Gosh. Oops. <laughs> well, that's awkward. So, yeah. So, if you need a more succinct analysis or description of this movie, a bunch of British white people came to Harlem to shoot one scene and turned off essential utilities for the people while they did it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, all right. Roger Moore action scenes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> he... <laughs> Let's say he... I, I would say he's less physical than Sean Connery was. A little bit. Um, at least this is pre that little oof noise that he makes every time he gets punched. That doesn't come That's in true. until a little while, like a couple films from now, I think. But how in the world did those henchmen not see everything coming? Because he sure telegraphed it to us. Yeah. I don't know. I always bend down to tie my shoes when I'm being led away at gunpoint. <laughs> so now this is where we find out that the CIA guy is a CIA guy. Right. And we get what? a genuine what? Felix Leiter. <laughs> yeah. Illuminating. Yes. Before that, I like CIA guy's comment where he's like, great disguise Bond. Yeah. White face in Harlem. <laughs> yes. Good thinking, Bond. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're off to San Monique, unfortunately. To see Baron Samadhi. Baron Samadhi. Baron Samadhi things. <laughs> Which... Seems to involve prancing around and laughing maniacally. Yes. And that is all he does in this movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get another classic James Bond sweeping his hotel room for bugs. Yes. Which, again, I, I, I'm so sorry I said that he only does this in the first couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> also, man... The um, bed linen and the curtains are yeah. so 70s. <laughs> yes, they are. And he has a hairbrush that he does something with. Oh, the one he sticks out the little w- at the window and clicks the button a bunch of times for yeah. reasons? Yeah. I-, I don't know what that's about. Oh, uh, apparently the instant steam was only a Sean Connery trick. Yeah. 
Because <laughs> he doesn't get that when he turns on the bathtub. This, I, I don't, James Bond in a bathtub. It's not the first time. Let's we see. had him reading the Magna- magazine before. True, in, in Vegas, yeah. Maybe Mankiewicz likes having James Bond in a bathtub. I'll have to see if he does that again in the next movie. It just seems like an odd setup for shaving. I have I I don't know about you. I have never shaved in a bathtub. No. Uh, I also think it's really weird to light a cigar in the middle of like your <laughs> cleaning process. Like, wouldn't you wait until you were done? Like, certainly yeah. before you put the aftershave on. Or, I mean, after yeah. you put the aftershave on. <laughs> The aerosol, the aerosol. I mean, obviously, in this case, it's so he can make a flamethrower that doesn't actually go hit the snake. But that's a whole other thing, right? (laughs) Yeah, like wouldn't the ashes fall in your in the water in the bathtub? Uh, Yeah. Now, now, I need to. I'm going to pay attention to this because is this the only time James Bond smokes cigars? It might be. I remember thinking that's interesting. You don't often don't often see Bond smoke a cigar when it. So, yeah, it might be. Also, that's a big cigar. Uh yeah. the the that design or style of cigar is what's called a Churchill named for mm-hmm. <laughs> Churchill. Um <laughs> and uh he'll be smoking that for like 2 hours. Yeah. Like when you when you light up one of those, that's a commitment. <laughs> I appreciate it later on when he's just chilling out on his hang glider smoking a cigar. Yes. <laughs> Again, I, I just am always criticizing Bond smoking because this is something that I actually do. I do smoke cigars, and I know <laughs> it's just like, I don't think he would really... That's not a, That's not a cigar you would smoke while relaxing before going to bed normally. That's something that you would smoke if you're going to be doing something for the next two hours <laughs> you would generally have a smaller cigar if before before going to bed interesting yeah I, i've again that I've may be smoked, different maybe yeah. uh, the things may have changed but i certainly wouldn't light up a churchill uh well certainly not during the process of shaving um <laughs> i i want to know he orders slightly chilled champagne and i don't know how you do that they don't keep it chilled and they just Maybe. stick it on ice. I get, I, yeah, I don't know. But before long, so Whisper delivers the slightly chilled champagne. Uh, and then not long after, we meet Rosie Carter. Uh, Carver, sorry, Carver? Yeah, Rosie, we meet Rosie Carver, who. Yes. He puts his cigar out on her hand. Ooh. Uh, and yeah. then somehow flips her over on the bed. Which yeah, I'm not sure how know. that happened. Yeah, and she to me embodies everything that's wrong with Tom Mankiewicz writing. Oh yeah, no, I was thinking like, about this after watching you were talking about the the '70s sexism. And, oh mm-hmm. God, she's so bad. Mm-hmm. And the way Bond treats her is even worse. There's like one moment where he seems like he's proud of her, but that's about it. It's uh, it's really bad. She's clearly out of her element. She's inept, let's say. She mm-hmm. just 
you know, she's like, oh, you're my, you're only my second case. The first one was the guy who died. Like, who who does that? I like Bond's line. So we we talked about it for a second, but they, for whatever reason, again, convoluted ways of killing people. They put a poisonous snake in his bathroom, and he kills it by not hitting it with a flamethrower that he made out of a aerosol can. <laughs> and he just leaves it there, and then we have other stuff going on, and Rosie goes into the bathroom and screams and comes out and... He's like, he says, oh, a snake, I forgot. I should have told you to never go in there without a mongoose. Which is a funny line. Yeah. But. But. He shouldn't have just, like, had her go into the bathroom and not no. advise her of the dead snake in there. No, he would No. Um, we get terrible lines, like, I'm sure we can lick you into shape. Uh, yeah. Uh, we then go out and charter a boat. From with Coral Jr., which they don't actually call out, but is presumed to be the son of Quarrel from Dr. No, Correct. which is the side effect of filming movies not in the same order as books. Right. Yeah, remember that guy from six movies ago or seven movies ago? Yeah, how um, many people did? I can't imagine that many. I mean, I think I probably did just because when I... This was, for whatever reason, this was probably one of the last movies of the series that I saw. So I'd seen Dr. No enough that I remembered. I mean, Quarrel's a fairly memorable character, I think, in Dr. No. Right. So, and I think for people who are watching them all in a row, they would certainly do yeah. it. But I'm thinking people in the 70s, how many mm -hmm. of them, especially when, remember, this is a time before home video. Yep. How many, and cable. So there yeah. were no TNT marathons. Yep. Uh, how many people in the theater would have been like oh you mean like that guy from that movie 10 years ago right yeah not many like it would have been the next movie sure but yeah i can't think that that was something that that many people picked up on mm -mm. so i'm a little confused okay she asks coral jr where where can she go to change and then we see her down downstairs taking off her robe and she's already wearing her swimsuit under it yeah she could have done that up on top yeah there was no if she was gonna wear the swimsuit anyway why did she need to go downstairs to change because she has to find the secret room and then make a fool of herself by thinking that he's a bad person yeah also there's like naked women on the wall yeah i i, I wrote that down like there's a lot of nudes on the wall here again 70s I guess, yeah. Do more, I guess. So, like, that's a trope. I have never known anyone to <laughs> actually have naked pictures on their wall. Ever. Just, just up on the wall, yeah. <laughs> that has never happened in my life. No. Unless we're talking about, like, paintings. I have never seen posters or cutouts from Playboy on anyone's wall in real life. No, I think I, I could probably say the same but Only that's like movies. a trope that you see in movies you read about it in books and it's just like was this a thing that everyone did 30 <laughs> years ago that they just don't now i have no idea <laughs> yeah it is weird i mean i realize that consumption of porn is very different today than it was then <laughs> but it still seems weird to just put it on the wall. Now I'm wondering things like, did pilots really put pinups in their cockpits? Because yeah, that's another thing that people just apparently do in movies. I'm thinking um, 
in Die Hard. Yeah, the the random like naked poster. Yeah, that the construction workers had just put on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that a thing that people do at their workplace? I have never been to a workplace that has porn on the wall. No. <laughs> you work from home, so you can solve both of these issues I at once. I could put my own porn on the wall, I suppose. But... And then you, then you could be somebody who puts porn up on the wall and also have porn up at the workplace. I have not always I'm not advocating this, home in my way. entire life, though. <laughs> <laughs> I have never... But no, I'm not planning on putting porn on the wall. Uh, like, the only places I have ever seen porn in public are, like, well, magazines on in, like, convenience stores and stuff like that. Or yep. being handed out on the street in Las Vegas. Right. <laughs> That's, like, the Las only Vegas places special, I have ever so. seen porn in public. Yeah. <laughs> but, anyway, I, I just... The 70s, man. Yeah. They were a weird time. I assume I wasn't there. So anyway, yes, there's this there's the secret radio room with a gun that's just lying on the shelf. Yeah, that's that's bad gun safety right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a bit. Like, wouldn't you think he would have it on him? I do like the scene where you see Coral coiling the rope behind Bond so <laughs> yes. that you didn't know. <laughs> you know, yeah. it looks sinister. It does. We have a couple fake-outs like that, because we later have the one where we're waiting for Bond to crest the hill and find something secret that Kanaga says to kill him if he finds it, and then he goes over the hill and you don't see anything. Yeah. That's another nice fake-out. That's a good one, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good scene, and then the way Bond treats her for doing what she was supposed to do Mm -hmm. is really bad. Yeah. Yeah, he, he... pats her butt and says never mind darling and uh Uh, yuck yeah yeah and then they get to where they're going they decide to picnic instead of doing their job which is a problem yeah because she's secretly working for kananga she is (sighs) and bond has sex with her which okay yep that's Mm -hmm. just bond and then and then like she freaks out because she realizes that they're watching them yeah, and Bond is like she's like you can't kill me now, not after we've we not after we've had sex. And Bond's like, well, I certainly wouldn't have killed you before we had sex, right? Like, <sighs> so anyway, yeah, she freaks out because she sees the scarecrow and runs away, and another scarecrow fires a dart and kills her. Yep, and no yes, Bond Rosie definitely Tyler. shaves. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and now Kananga's mad because Solitaire didn't read the cards correctly. And she's like, you weren't, you just asked me a vague question, so I gave you a vague answer. She also did lie, because we saw that the card was the lovers, and she said it was death. I do like that scene earlier, because, I, you know, I feel like Kananga just calls the psychic hotline every once in a while, and is like, tell me the future. <laughs> and she just flips over cards. So, Kananga makes a comment here. She's like, don't make, don't make the same mistake as your mother. Right. Uh, which isn't fully explained yet, but will be later. Uh, mm-hmm. that if she has sex, she loses her psychic powers. Yep. Which, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I have a note here uh, that I wrote down about that, because the book is racist, misogynistic, and ageist. And at least this one is an ageist. It doesn't have the long diatribe about how terrible old people are that the book does <laughs> for no apparent reason. Yes. Um, but... <laughs> 
it at least doesn't have this bullshit about her having sex and being ruined. Yeah. That's just, ugh. Well, and you get that really awful line later where Kananga's pissed off at her, and he's like, you know, when the time was right, I was gonna do that. Like, you didn't even let me be the one that caused you to lose your psychic powers. Yeah. It's all And, just and again, this that, that's another scene up. where, it's. I mean, we're jumping ahead, it's another scene where I think Yafet Kodo does a really good job performing a really bad bit of work. Yes. Or a bad bit of script. Because I like the... I, I like the acting choices he makes there. I just think what he's saying is terrible. A little bit. So, yeah, now we have Bond hang gliding and he's smoking a cigar again. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so this is even worse. He's smoking another really long cigar. He barely smokes any of it and he just flicks it away. Ah! <sighs> You know, they come in different sizes. <laughs> and I don't know if Roger Moore was a cigar I don't person. think he was, because he flicks that away like a cigarette. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's another producer thing saying, well, Bond always smoked cigarettes, so let's give him a cigar this time. But they didn't know how to smoke According it to the Bond wiki, yes. That was a deliberate choice to differentiate him from Connery. Okay. So we have Day for Night again, by the way. Yes, we do. Slightly better, but not much. Part of it is better, part of it is terrible. I've never been convinced by any Day for Night nah. stuff. So. Uh, in the Bond movies, okay. There are some yeah. movies that have done it well. Recent movies. Uh, well, that I mean, that's, that's different, though. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road does it well, I think. But obviously that's... You know, after, you know, an additional 40 years of cinematography. Cinematography, you could do digital grading on stuff. You can do all kinds of things now. Uh, But after he lands, after he's kicked the guy off the cliff, which, okay, that was mm -hmm. clever. uh, He rips off his (laughs) pants to reveal tan (laughs) pants and flips his jacket around to make it a tan jacket. And I don't even think there's a reason for this. They just do it. In my head, I'm like, they're like, this is the 70s, so tan is in. But we can't have him hiding up in the air in tan. So we're going to give him, like, a stealth suit. (laughs) (laughs) He has, like, like a black ascot to cover his white shirt. Yes, he does. (laughs) It's amazing. So I'm really impressed by the reversible suit. Yeah. I don't think it's real, um, but I am impressed by it. Yeah. Like, how do you get the lapels to lay flat like that <laughs> on both sides? <laughs> yeah. It's impressive. I don't think it in is. the next scene when you see him in a tan suit, it is actually the reversible suit, though. I think it's no, just I a don't, tan suit. I, yeah, I think... And he better not give a press conference in that suit, or, ooh, the skin. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and this is when he coerces Solitaire into having sex with him by tricking her. Yeah. I mean, he admits it later, but... Still. Still, it's terrible. Also, where did he find a complete deck of lover cards? I mean... Well, they didn't they show a, a um, like a voodoo shop somewhere? Oh, that's right, he hotel. did go to the voodoo shop at the hotel. Yeah. I mean, what I want to know is, did he have to buy, like, a hundred packs of voodoo cards to get enough of them or probably can you just buy one oh, card by the way uh, i don't know if you noticed but in the close-up of the cards the cards actually say 007 on the back no i didn't notice that actually <laughs> yeah cool 
Product placement. Product placement? Does I don't it... know. I don't know. <laughs> Did they sell those somewhere? I mean, who knows? Oh, I get what you're saying. I thought you said it was product placement for 007. And I'm no, like, oh, well, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, like, we'll, this is a we'll, marketing opportunity. We'll do product placement for the movie that you're watching. Yeah. So there is that. And yeah. then she gets the conversation about how she's now ruined for Kananga. And mm-hmm. yeah, this is, again, just 70s sexism. And this is where the book, for all its disgusting racism and everything else, gives Solitaire much more agency than the movie does. Yeah. In the book, she actually seeks out him. Mm-hmm. And it's just so creepy and gross and ugh, i hate it this is this continues the bad trend that started last week where you know the women are no longer they, they no longer act with any sort of agency they no longer act with any sort of competence really yeah you had like you had domino you had pussy galore for all her terrible character names and rapey stuff that goes on with her i mean she's a fairly strong character who's making her own decisions a lot of the time and, I mean, Solitaire, I, I, I'm struggling to find any time when she actually makes a choice for herself. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's another thing where it's like, once you get over the the reason that they ended up sleeping together in the first place, which it's hard to get over, but when she's like, oh, do we have time for lesson three? And and then you get, <laughs> get the Bond's line, he's like, well, no sense in going off half-cocked. Which, again, is another very Tom Mankiewicz line, I think. It is. And I do like her little smirk when he says that. Yeah. Like she got, she got over her her uh, concern about this stuff pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. So now we get them walking through the wilderness and they walk past the guy who plays Baron Samadhi, who's just being creepy. Yep. And this is where Kananga is advised that Bond is heading towards something and says if he finds it, kill him. And I, I really like it. We get to the top of this hill and the music swells. It's like, oh, he's going to see something. And there's nothing. There's nothing there. It's just And hills. that would be so much more, a much cooler fake out if not 10 seconds later he walks into the opium field. But because he does, it's just like, okay. And then they don't kill him. No. Well, because their camouflage is so good that they can't even see him. Right. I mean, that's that's some lucky... When the plane flies over and they shoot at him, and the bullets just go over them. I mean, that's that's pretty lucky. That is some... Yes, definite luck. Uh, so we get a double-decker bus chase scene. Yep, for reasons. It would have been better with the 007 music. It would have been. It also has a couple bad rear projection shots. In the bus, yeah. Yeah, when you see the motorcycles chasing behind. Right. Honestly, like, at first glance, like, it just looks like Solitaire is sitting in front of a projection screen, which she is. (laughs) She is, yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. So we get the long chase scene. We get the, I do kind of like the low-hanging bridge that then makes the police car crash. That's clever, yeah. Yeah. I like how they drive to the end of the pier, possibly killing some people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That was... Yeah. And this is when they go to uh, they go to New Orleans, right? Yes, because he says yeah. Tampa is closer, but New Orleans is where the guy died. And right. I feel like that was just an offhand reference to the book, because in the book they never go to New Orleans and things are in Tampa. Oh, no, actually not Tampa, uh, St. Petersburg. But they're in Florida. 
So they get to New Orleans, and it's the same cab driver, and he hijacks them. Yes. He gets around. He does. And then... Then we get the stupid plane scene for no reason. There's so many ridiculous chase scenes in this movie. Like, why? But, like, this this feels like we talked about with Diamonds, that stupid scene when they're in the car driving around a parking oh, lot. Yeah, no, this like, is this just is like... This is like that only in a plane. Yeah, because he drives all around the airport, but he does apparently put that driving student into intensive care somehow. And that's supposed to be funny, apparently. I, I did make a note of at one point they're in the plane and he they're closing the hangar doors and he's going to go through and he ends up ripping the wings off and the woman goes, oh shit. Yep, it's the first time that's said in a Bond film. And I'm trying to think of another time that they swear in a Bond film, actually, at least up until very recently. But anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we have some in the newer ones. So, during this process, one of the cars that's chasing the plane, the windshield cracks... Mm-hmm. Okay. The guy can't see. Okay. But then the passenger tells him to slow down and he says, I can't see the gas pedal. <laughs> <laughs> That's an actual line in the. Yes. No, it's the brake. I can't find the brake. Because yeah. the windshield is cracked. He can't find the brake pedal. Did it fall off? I mean. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> like, what? How? Why? (laughs) Yeah. That's dumb. (laughs) Yeah, just a bit. And I somehow missed that, probably because I was already tuned out, because I knew that this plane scene was long and dumb and pointless. Oh, it's so bad. We then get another version of the jazz funeral. But not before Bond gets fitted for a new suit. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Because that's a thing. Yep. Felix and Bond are going to go check out Filet of Soul. Also, I would like to point out that while I'm nitpicking people's smoking habits, the CAA guy whose name I don't think I ever knew. Uh, yeah. I don't know, they do mention it a couple times, but I've forgotten. Who gets captured by this funeral. There is nothing in his pipe. No. Because you can actually see down it in one scene. There's nothing in his pipe. <laughs> so they should just stop smoking because you had pipe issues with Honor Majesty's Secret Service too. Yes. <laughs> um, I like the, the return to Filet of Soul and Bond doesn't want to sit in the booth. Yeah, he's, I like how he says I had a nasty turn in a booth. That yeah, yeah, yeah. It's convenient so they... that they had the backup place that was also works to capture Bond. Yes. It's like, if he doesn't sit here, take him here to the second place we can use to capture people. Right. I always laugh. I don't know why I think it's funny, but, you know, they sit down and then Bond orders his bourbon again. And Felix is like, two Sazeracs. And then he's like, it's, it's New Orleans. You have to relax and have fun. I'm like, Felix needs to get out more. But... Okay, no, Sazeracs are... If you're in Pretty New Orleans, that's a good thing to order in New Orleans, though. No, it's not wrong. No, it, no, I'm not. I'm not criticizing that. It's just that he's ordering two of them, and he thinks that's uh, no. I think he was. Oh, you're saying okay. No, I assume yeah. he was order. He was ordering two, meaning one was for Bond. Mm. 
Maybe. But yes, if Felix is, uh, you know, relaxing and having fun after two Sazeracs, then yes, he uh, needs to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets dropped through the floor this time. I like how quickly the waiters are just ready to yeah. put new drinks out and everything. I'm surprised someone didn't drink Bond's drink this time. <laughs> yes. So now we get Mr. Big again, and he's pretending to be Kananga's lackey for some reason. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, yes, the one question, did you mess with that? And then yeah. he points directly at Solitaire's cleavage. Right. <sighs> yep. And Bond's like, no, I want to talk to Kananga. So he pulls off the mask, and Bond's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Quite revealing. <laughs> like, is, is he that dumb? Or did he know, and he was just making him, waiting, making him show his hand? Uh, I don't know. Either way, uh, I just... Yeah. <laughs> everything about this movie. <laughs> I like the butterhook line when, when he has Teehee to take off his watch, and he's fumbling around with it because he can't grab it very well and Bond just says butterhook. Yeah, that was good. Uh, again, we have a, yet another moment and we have one later where it's just to shoot him. And we also see that this is all for Bond's benefit somehow. They don't kill Bond now and they don't chop off his finger even though he knows that Solitaire lied. Like, what was the whole point of that scene? I don't know. I do like Teehee's look of disappointment when he thinks he's yes! not going to get to cut off Bond's <laughs> That finger. was good. <laughs> But, like, why go through that that whole performance at all? Especially when in the the next scene he's confronting Solitaire and saying he knows she lied. Yeah. Like, what, what was the purpose who of is this? this? Yeah, who is this for? Bond's dot... He assumes Bond is being killed. But, of course, we've got to have the very complicated way that we kill him. Well, I mean, so this reminds me of, you know, you, you had a... He had major issues with the the handling of the gangsters and Mr. Solo and Goldfinger. And this feels like that to me again. Where yeah, yeah. they're going to kill him, but we could shoot you here under this floor where no one's going to find you. But no, we're going to put you in a car and take you to the take them to take them to the farm. At least in this case they didn't build an entire practical demonstration. No, true. To sh- before killing him, that was for the sole purpose of showing them what they're gonna do before killing him. But yeah, <laughs> so it's still better than Goldfinger. Okay. But <laughs> yeah, it's dumb. It's we're so gonna dumb. walk you out to this little island and leave you there and let crocodiles come and eat you. Can I just say that Teehee has impeccable fashion sense? I love his outfits. It's, they're great. I agree. So interestingly the owner of the actual alligator farm was Kananga. And that's where they got the name. And I think he's the guy that does the stunt. Yes, he is. I'm sorry, yes, it's the guy that does the stunt. Not, it, maybe it was also the owner? Yeah, he, he owns the the crocodile farm. Um, and it really does have a sign that says trespassers will be killed and eaten. Yep, that's how they found it, according to mm-hmm. the information I saw. Uh, you know, Bond is on this little island and he's... I do like the fake out where you think he's going to use the watch to get the boat, and then oh, uh, the boat's tied up. Yeah, that was good. Why does he send the crocodile, the alligator? Because that is it has a short nose. Uh, why does yeah. he send the alligator into the building if he's going to burn the building anyway? Just to mess with the people inside the building, I guess. I don't know. I guess, but like, 
it feels completely unnecessary because the building catches on fire and they all run out because of that. Yeah. I mean, you get that one scene of the scientist backed up against a wall and that's it. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway. I like the fake out. The stunt feels a bit ridiculous. Like, what were the odds that they would line up perfectly for that? Sure. There's a series of outtakes where it took, I think, four tries to get it to work. And <laughs> some of them were actually pretty, like, there was one where the guy, he actually got bit on the foot and everything. I mean, Ooh. I, I, major, the guy deserved to have the villain named after him for all the stuff he's, he did in this Fair. movie, I think. And now we get, uh... The world's longest boat chase. And your favorite Bond character, right? Oh, God. <laughs> Sheriff Pepper is the worst character in Bond, I think. Nobody cuts and runs on Chef G.W. Pepper. I believe in a recent episode, I defended him in this movie, saying he's so much worse than Man with the Golden Gun. Mm-hmm. I take that back. <laughs> I think he's better in The Man with the Golden Gun. Because at least he doesn't... He is comprehensible when he speaks in The Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> yeah. In this one, oh my god. God, he is so terrible. Now you listen to me, Trooper Boy. We got a swamp full of black Russians driving boats to beat the dam down here. Like, there is are no redeeming qualities about him. I mean, I think you you were defend, not defending him so much as saying, it makes sense that there is a terrible white racist sheriff in New Orleans. That's fair. Okay. See, and see, there's the thing. I'm not actually sure how racist he is yes he calls he calls the henchman boy but then he Mm -hmm. also calls bond boy yeah so i mean other than the fact that we assume pretty much any sheriff in the south in the 70s i probably don't even have to say in the 70s uh is racist right but he doesn't actually display much racism other i mean yes Calling a black person boy is offensive. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he also calls Bond boy implies that perhaps he uses that term for everybody. Could be. Which means that it's still not good to call a black person boy because of the connotation there. But but yes, you're right. His character makes more sense in the American South than it does in Thailand. But yeah, like, why is he on vacation in Thailand? His performance is so horrible in this movie. And he gets way too much screen time. Like, you can't understand half of his lines even. No. Oh, it's so bad. He's, he's, he makes the, the dumb women characters look smart. He, yeah, I guess. So there's that, I guess. No, I, I find nothing redeemable about his oh, presence God. in this movie. It's so bad. Um, the, the boat chase itself is a lot of good stunts, but that's it. It also needs the 007 theme. It, yeah, well, <laughs> I guess George Martin didn't have the rights to do it. Uh, yeah. I mean... So, apparently, the, um, the... I will say, I do... It did amuse me when the boat crashed into, into Pepper's car. Yeah. And his first reaction to that was also amusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which apparently was entirely ad-libbed, because they didn't intend uh, to crash the boat into the car. Okay. Wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and they left it in because they liked his reaction. So, okay. like, the only good acting that character has is something that wasn't scripted. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of good stunts that they do here. Yeah. So I want to give them credit for that. This feels a lot to me like a lot of recent comic book movies and other movies where it's a whole bunch of CGI going on on the screen. It's just stunt drivers doing stunt stuff for way too long. So I know you are not a huge fan of most modern comic book movies, but I will say mm-hmm. that I don't think there is a single MCU movie that is worse than this movie, that, that, that is as bad as this movie. Oh, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. Come on. DC, maybe. Even, um, even, Th- even Thor 2. Be- even Thor 2 is better movie. than this movie. Yeah. Even Iron Man 2 is better than this movie. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, yeah. There's, I like the 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 boat that ends up in the swimming pool. That was good. Mm-hmm. Yep. I like how you hear in the police scanner that the guy called in to report his boat was stolen, but he got a new one in his pool. That was yeah. Funny. Yeah. Yes. I do not like the implied racism of well, the black guy stole the brother-in-law's boat, so he drives by, and the sheriff looks away just as he drives by, and the and the and the state police are like, oh well, that's just look, stare in disbelief at the idea that his brother-in-law is a black guy. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah, because that's clearly the only. Re- that's clearly what that was intended to show. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure at the time it was intended to make people think that was hilarious that they thought his brother-in-law was a black guy. Yeah. Then we had the boats through the wedding, which apparently is a thing. That mm-hmm. happened because why not? Yep. I I kind of like the blind oyster dri- truck driver. <laughs> that one's okay. Yeah. But the whole thing takes way too long and doesn't even really do much in the movie. Well, and that's that was something that really struck me, I think, watching this was, you know, you have all the stuff in New York. You have the side trips with Rosie in San Monique. And then the movie just runs out of plot. <laughs> yes! And, and they just do these stupid set piece things. Because, like, this could be a 90-minute movie. Yeah. And then they suddenly remember that it's a Bond movie because you get this last bit in the standard issue bond layer yeah that just comes out of nowhere yes comes out of nowhere uh, a lot of stuff comes out of nowhere in this last bit like suddenly he has a shotgun with compressed air pellets for reasons that it was against to fight against sharks but we don't actually ever see him fighting sharks with it no there's a there's some cool scenes where he does fight sharks in the book yeah we have the thing where they have Boy, it sure was convenient that they rose the fake Baron Sandy first, wasn't it? I don't even get that. I assume it was to be like a statue of Baron Sandy With movable eyes? Or something. Like, it's just... That, that was so weird. weird. Yeah, the whole thing was just bizarre. But yeah, then we go to the, the, the lair with the henchmen that wear blue jeans and red polo shirts. <laughs> yes. Because well, when you're in a bond la- when you're in a bond villain lair, you get your uniform if you're a lackey. I guess, and that's apparently the uniform. Yeah, blue jeans and a red polo shirt. It is yeah. not flattering on Whisper. 
is not flattering on Whisper at all. <laughs> Have they not heard of ordering a size up? <laughs> Anyway. Doesn't he tuck it? Doesn't he have the shirt tucked in too? He does have the shirt tucked in, and yeah. as a not skinny person, I will say that that is one of the biggest mistakes you can make when trying to not look like a lump, like a shapeless blob, is to tuck in your shirt. And he has a giant belt buckle too, which is. <laughs> yes, I think that's just more like the black exploitation sort of thing. Could be. Also, the couch is apparently all one piece. (laughs) What I don't get is how do the air pellets get inside the couch, but it doesn't put a hole in it. Yeah, that. And how does it expand that much? I I don't know. (laughs) What happens to Whisper? He falls into that, like, container, and then we don't see him again. They left him in there, I guess. I guess, like, I, I think it would be better if Whisper was also on the train in the end. Okay. I don't know what they would have done with him, though. I'm not sure either. But, like, have him there in, like, a bellhop uniform or something. Oh, maybe. He he could be the one handing the mailbag that has Teehee in it. Yeah! To, uh, to the train people or something, yeah. But we don't have that. And... No. We, we have to have the most ludicrous... <laughs> Kananga dies... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, jeez. Why? Why? <laughs> Just <so> why? <laughs> and I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but he has a better death in the book. He gets book. eaten by sharks in the book, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> he does get eaten by sharks in the book. In the While he's swimming angrily towards Bond to have his revenge, he gets eaten by sharks. Here's the thing, that could have been the ending of the movie. That could have been the ending of this movie, yes! <laughs> they could have just made a non a less racist version of the book, and it would have been so much better than what they actually made. First of all, the whole setup here is stupid. Like, just shoot them. Yeah, so many times. But we'll have that complaint every movie. <laughs> we're, we're gonna tie you to this crane. We're gonna slash your arm so you bleed into the water. We're going to... Open the the gate, let sharks in. All right, guard, begin the unnecessarily slow-moving dipping mechanism. And then Vaughn uses his little magnet watch again to get the shotgun thing. And then suddenly it turns into a buzzsaw, I guess, too. So he can cut cut off his rope. I do like when... So he gets off and then gets off the the thing and has a little, you know, hand-to-hand fight with Kananga and they fall into the pool... I do like Kananga, like, when he falls in, and he's just, like, he's like, shark, 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 and he's, like, pointing. Like, he suddenly forgets that he's fighting this guy, and is like, there's a shark over there. Mm-hmm. Um, like, maybe we shouldn't fight and get out of the water. Yeah, like, like yeah, we, maybe we should, yeah. Uh, and then Pong puts the thing in his mouth, and he explodes. Like, and how did that like happen, too? Like, I understand he put the thing in his mouth, but did he, like, bite down on it and break it somehow so there's a pin and he he says don't pull the pin out but wouldn't it like come out immediately when you pull the pin like Like, would you have time to turns into like a helium balloon (laughs) why oh my god (laughs) and that's leaving aside the fact this is a 1973 movie and the effect is terrible Mm -hmm. where it's definitely a helium balloon in the shape of sort of a man so that happens, and he always had an inflated opinion of himself. Mm-hmm. And then we get a nice little uh, 
retread of what happened at the end of Diamonds Are Forever, where the henchmen yes. try to attack our hero and his lady as they're traveling. And this works. The fight works. I like fights in train mm-hmm. cars. Um, yeah, the the fight in um, From Russia With Love was really good, too. Yeah, and there's a good one with Jaws and the... Spy Who Loved Me, too. Yes. Also, I, I do feel like them leaving on train is another nod to the book, because that's how they get from New York to Florida in the mm. in the book. So yeah, there's a night Teehee's hidden in a mailbag, because yep. no one noticed that it was a person when they picked up the bag. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a nice fight yeah. scene with Solitaire stuck in the bed the whole time. Yeah, because again, 70s sexism. Yep. I mean, at least she does get to beat him at Gin Rummy. Yeah, and again, people, there's not nearly enough slamming the table and yelling rummy. This is not yelling rummy. <laughs> I, I do like the way Teehee's done in because he cuts the cables of his little arm thing and he gets stuck to the window. Yeah, and, and just being disarming is a good pun. Yeah. We... And then we end with Baron Somdi, because why not? Riding on the front of the train for his... Yeah, why not? And that's the end of the movie, thank goodness. So that was Live and Let Die. I will say, just for those listening, I really feel that this, that you and I both dislike this movie probably way more than it came off in our discussion of it. I think we were really trying to find good things to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, honestly, I'll say that this movie made Diamonds Are Forever look not as bad. Mm-hmm. And I think... By comparison, the man with the golden gun next week is going to look pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, there's another terrible female character in that movie. Oh, she's so bad. Yes, you're not wrong. We get the inexplicable return of Sheriff Pepper. My biggest issue with the man with the golden gun, honestly, is that it makes no sense. Yeah, it's weird. It's very weird, and we're not even talking about three-nipple weird. Like, it's just <laughs> it's just weird. I don't think I've sat down to watch it from beginning to end in a long time so i watched it uh because i actually just got a no, uh, facebook memory notification about it i watched it a few years ago when christopher lee died mm, okay but i haven't seen it since then but yeah we'll we'll get to that next week yeah thank you so much for listening to us this week if you would like to contact us you can find us on twitter at podspiel or you can send us an email at spielpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at listening to film. And you can find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. Do you have any final thoughts about Live and Let Die? Well, no, other than that, this is the end of Live and Let Die. I don't even know if they say that, but thank goodness it's the end of Live and Let Die. And License to Spiel will return next week with The Man with the Golden Gun. Mm-hmm.